How are y'all doing today? All right? Good. My name's John, and I'm uh, here from Community Christian Church, and uh, just excited to be celebrating with Parkview. And I don't know about you, but I think we need to say thanks again to the worship team today. That was good stuff, huh? I, uh, I, I love the last song that we sang together, uh, Greater Things Have Yet to Come and Greater Things Are Still to Be Done in the City. And uh, boy, that one really just like kind of grabs me and gets my heart beating fast. It was two years ago that me and my wife and my kids, we uh, lived in Naperville, Illinois for 11 years and moved downtown uh, Chicago on the north side to uh, help launch new churches in the city. And in part, due to the generosity and vision of Parkview, uh, new churches are being planted in Chicago now and lives are being changed. And yeah, good things have been happening in the city, but greater things are still to come. And so, um, you know, I'm only one person, so it's not going to sound very loud if I clap for you. So why don't you just clap? for yourselves real quick for being a part of what's happening in the city of Chicago. Good stuff. Uh, let me ask you a question though. If you could live, all right, in any community in the country, where would you pick to live, all right? If you could pick to live in any community in the entire United States, all right, where would you pick to live? Tell you what, turn to someone near you and just share with them real quick where you would pick to live. If you could live anywhere, okay? Do that real quick. Okay, I can see this is a group that's easy to get talking. <laughs> Might be a difficult group to get to stop talking. <laughs> uh, now, some of us might have picked a particular place, you know, like, uh, I don't know, San Diego. Anybody pick San Diego? Yeah, a few of us. That, that's what I picked. I, I love San Diego. Or maybe some, you know, beach community on the coast of Florida. But whatever community you think of, odds are that you pick that place because you're looking for something in particular, all right? Uh, for instance, my best friend Google, all right, says if you're looking for the most house for your money, then you would want to move to Minot, North Dakota, where you can get a four-bedroom, two-and-a-half-bath home on average for about $132,000. Not a bad buy, huh? And I think that was pre-crash prices, too. All right, if it's warm weather, all right, experts say it's Yuma, Arizona. Now, when I said Yuma, Arizona last night, somebody said, oh, yuck. I don't know what their problem is with human Arizona, but 340 plus days of sunshine every, every year. Now, the average temperature in the summer is like 105, but they say it's a dry heat, <laughs> whatever that means. Uh, Google also says the smartest place to live, any guesses? Boulder, Colorado. Boulder, Colorado. That's based on uh, average IQ and level of education. And the dumbest place to live? Any thoughts where the dumbest place to live is? <laughs> Las Vegas, Nevada. <laughs> Did anybody guess that? Turns out you can't get a, uh, a master's degree in blackjack. I, I don't know. Go figure. And now, here you go. If you're single, okay, so now take note here. All right, if you're single, best place to live is Austin, Texas, which has the highest percentage of single people looking to date between the ages of 18 and 35. All right? Now watch, there's going to be a run on Southwest Airline tickets to Austin, Texas this afternoon. All right? 
All right, well, if you got nothing else, you got that today. But we all know how it is. We tend to love a community for what it offers, you know. And I love Chicago for lots of reasons. I love Chicago for its food. I mean, let's face it. You can't have a conversation with a Chicagoan without it eventually going to food, right? Best hot dogs, best pizza on the planet, all right? I think we can all agree on that one. I love Chicago for its people. Hardworking, unpretentious, good-natured for the most part. As long as you don't steal their parking space after a major snowstorm, I'm learning that. And you know, I also love Chicago for its sports teams. You know, I love the Bulls, the Bears, the Hawks, and its favorite baseball team, the Chicago Cubs. Yeah. That was so easy. What, we got a couple Sox fans here? Seriously? Well, all right, you know, I'm very aware that your pastor, Tim, is an avid uh, White Sox fan. And so out of um, honor and respect and reverence for him, uh, I decided to bring a change of wardrobe. Because, you know, you Cub fans here at Parkview have been suffering for far too long. And uh, I don't know how you've, how, I don't know how you had him here this long, because it's time that the Cubs get their due as bad as we are this year, Okay. Now, I want you to know something, too. I also did a little research in preparation for today. And uh, as much as I hate to bring it up, i got to mention this. We all know about the Steve Bartman incident in uh, the 2003 playoffs, right? Oh, sorry, Cub fans. I know my heart drops just thinking about it, too. Uh, Cubs were, what, five outs from going to the World Series, right? Uh, first, would have been the first time we got to the World Series since, you know, Jesus was born. Um, <laughs> But Moises Alou reaches up for a foul ball, right? As he reaches up to make a routine play, a young man reaches down and interferes with the play. Okay, now, here's a couple of photos of this incident you're probably familiar with. All right, Moises Alou reaches up for the foul ball, right? Okay, we've seen that one before. Next photo we've seen before, you know, the young man reaches, interferes with the play. Okay, now, hold the slides, okay? Here's what nobody has seen before, okay? And, and uh, this is in-depth research that I did before coming here today, never been released to the public before, okay? And I want to show you this. Here's what nobody has seen. If you zoom into that photo, look who is actually behind this heinous play that kept the Cubs from going to the World Series. You didn't know that, did you? And he just looks a little too happy there, doesn't he? Tim Steve Bartman Harlow, right there. The thing is, he will take pride in that photo and probably post it on some, like, Facebook somewhere, you know, or his blog. Anyway, you know, I do love Chicago, and I love Chicago for many reasons, and yes, one of them is the Cubs. I've been a lifelong Cub fan. Don't hold that against me too much. And there's nothing wrong with loving your community for what it has to offer, uh, but I really believe that a big part of God's dream for us is to love our communities for another reason. And so I'm going to take a look at a passage of Scripture in the Bible that talks about what I believe it means to really love our communities. And this comes from uh, Jeremiah in the Old Testament, chapter 29, verses 4 through 7. I'm going to read it. You can follow along. If you have a Bible, you can read it from your Bible as well or on the screen. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city. Pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Now, what we have here is a 2,600-year-old letter to people living in the city of Babylon, which today would be Iraq, 
all right? And I hope you notice that it said there, all those carried into exile from Jerusalem into Babylon. All right, little, little quick history lesson here, okay? In 597 BC, Jerusalem was conquered by the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar, okay? Say Nebuchadnezzar. If you kind of cough when you say it, you'll probably pronounce it right. Anyway, and uh, Nebuchadnezzar is actually the guy that Saddam Hussein said he was modeling his life after. So you can imagine what kind of a ruler he was. Nebuchadnezzar was a, was a ruthless conqueror. But once he conquered a place, he had sort of a not-so-ruthless way of dealing with the conquered people groups. Now check this out. He would actually take the leaders and the most educated and influential people from the people group that he just conquered, all right? And he would resettle them in the capital, in Babylon, he would guard them lightly, and then he would give them almost all the same rights as his own citizens, the same rights and freedoms, hoping that they would assimilate into the culture of his empire, and then he wouldn't have to worry about them kind of rising up against him and trying to throw him, uh, overthrow him. Kind of an interesting strategy. And so here you have all these Israelites, okay, they're far from home, their home is Jerusalem, they're living in exile, all right, when this guy named Hananiah, who is also an Israelite living there, all right, in exile in Babylon from Jerusalem, starts spreading a rumor that Nebuchadnezzar's regime is going to fall and it's going to fall soon. Now you can imagine the people were elated by that. And so they start believing that they're going to have a chance to finally get back to their homeland, finally get back to where they really want to be, Jerusalem. Some people even started like packing bags and they literally had bags packed in their homes ready so that, you know, as soon as they got word, they could head back to Jerusalem. Well, God sends in the prophet Jeremiah to tell the people the truth. And Jeremiah tells them it's going to be 70 years before anybody's going home. Now, think about that, all right? In those days, with a much lower life expectancy, if you were old enough even to understand what God was saying through the prophet Jeremiah, you knew you would likely never see Jerusalem again. So in this letter, God is saying to his people, you're not going anywhere. And so what I want you to do is I want you to settle down where you are. I want you to settle in right where you live right now, in that community, in that city where you are right now. But God wasn't saying, you know, get used to it or, hey, just deal with it. No, he's saying, I don't want you to just be where you are. I want you to love where you are. I want you to love your community. Now, from the very moment that we moved um, to Chicago to start these new churches in the city, that has been a part of our vision, and that is to actually love our city. And I think if we really want to love our communities, there's some words in this particular passage of Scripture that can really help us kind of get what that means, all right? And the first word, maybe you picked up on it when we read that passage of Scripture, is exiles. All right, say exiles. Right. Now, when I first read that, I kind of thought, hmm, exile, that's not a real compelling word. It doesn't sound that good. I mean, the word exile, exile kind of makes me think of someone who was, you know, sent away or banished to, you know, some awful place like, I don't know, Green Bay or something like that. I mean, that's something all Cubs and Sox fans can agree on. We would not want to live there, right? Okay. All right. Uh, but the idea of living in, an, in exile is a picture, really, of what the New Testament teaches about being a Christ follower. The idea of being in exile, all right, living somewhere that you don't always feel like you belong is really a picture of what the New Testament teaches about what it means to follow Christ. Jesus said to his followers, followers, you do not belong to this world. Christ followers are addressed in scriptures as aliens and strangers. In another place it says that our citizenship is in heaven. And so God was saying to his people, 2,600 years ago, you're exiles. You're strangers in this land. Now, Okay, I mentioned I love San Diego, right? And I do. Vacation there a few times, love it. 
But you know what? I'm a Chicago guy. All right? I mean, I love, you know, football and brats. I can't surf. My hair's not bleached blonde. And I look way better in a sweatshirt than I do in a swim trunks. It's not that funny. And so I love San Diego, but I'm no California guy. I mean, I'm just not. And see, I think God was reminding his people, hey, okay, okay you, you are exiles. All right? And I, I understand you're not in a city that you would call home. It's not your true home. But he was saying, I want you to live where you live as exiles, as the strangers that, that following me makes you, no matter where you might live right now. But I don't want you to be detached. I don't want you to be uninvolved from your culture. I want you to engage your culture. I want you to seek to transform your culture. I want you to love that place. And I think that's what he's saying to us today, no matter where we live, all right? And maybe you're living in a place that, you know what, it's not really where you want to be right now. Maybe the economy has forced you to stay where you are for a while. Maybe you plan to move somewhere else, all right? Maybe the place that you're in right now, it's just not really what you consider to be home. But God is saying to you today, while you are there, I don't want you to be unengaged. I don't want you to be uninvolved. You get involved. You love your community where you are. There's a phrase in the Lord's Prayer, the Our Father, that goes like this. Okay, help me out. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, right? And see, when Jesus taught us to pray, Thy kingdom come, He was talking to us about recognizing that we too are exiles, that this world as it is, is not our ultimate home. We have a God-given longing for a better place, a place that the Bible says there will be no more crying, no more pain, no more tears, right? But this doesn't mean that we isolate ourselves while we're here and sit around and talk about heaven all the time. No. What I think he's saying is that while we're here, while we're in this city, in whatever city you find yourself in, you're working toward restoring that community to reflect the values and the principles of God's kingdom, the priorities of peace and hope and love and joy and justice and kindness and generosity. See, that's what exiles are all about. That's how God's people are to live. So that's the first word, exiles. And then the second word, let's go ahead and take a look at that passage again in, in Jeremiah because there's another word there that I want us to look at. At the end of that passage there in verses 6 and 7, it says, Seek the peace and prosperity of the city. Pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city. See, in, um, in English, it's two words, peace and prosperity. But if you look at the Hebrew word, you know what the he Hebrew word there is? It's not peace and prosperity, it's what? Any guesses? Somebody said it. Yeah, it's shalom. It's shalom. Seek the shalom. Now, you've probably heard the word shalom as a, a way that people greet each other in Hebrew. You know, you can say either hello or goodbye, and you can say shalom. Kind of like in Hawaii, they say aloha for hello or goodbye. Or in some places, people will say, how you doing? And the response will be, how you doing? <laughs> or something like that. Maybe. <laughs> Not. <laughs> but, you know, shalom is, is a lot more than just a greeting and I think, you know, the best one-word translation for shalom is peace, but, you know, we think of peace as may, mainly just kind of absence of, or of conflict or absence of war, and God is talking about so much more here than just the absence of conflict or war, and that's why this two-word translation, peace and trans prosperity, is so much better than just the word peace. And so, see, for us to understand the world as God wants it to be, and the world, all of us as followers of His, are meant to restore, we've got to understand this biblical word shalom. Shalom has the idea, really, of a thread that, or threads that are finely woven together into a fine fabric. 
I mean, imagine if we all together in this room and the people that were in this room at 9 o'clock and the people that were in this room at 5 o'clock yesterday all decided that we each represent a different thread that's going to be woven together into a fine fabric that's going to impact our community. That's one big piece of fabric and that's one powerful impact we could have in our communities, huh? See, shalom is all the blessings that God wants us to bring to our communities woven together into something life-changing and something beautiful. Uh, one of my favorite authors and speakers is Tim Keller, and he's a pastor in New York City. He wrote a best-selling book, Reason for God, and I quote him a lot because what he says is a lot more interesting than what I say. And I love what he says about his church's mission. He says, we are not here to make a great church. We're here to help make a great city. We're not here to make a great church. We're here to help make a great city. And he loves New York. He thinks New York is already a great city. He's probably never been to Chicago. So when he talks about how to make New York a great city, he's talking about working for shalom, seeking the shalom of New York City. And I know that's what this church is about. I know the history of your church, and I know the impact that your church is already having in the communities around here and hopes to have in the future. And that's what you've been helping us do in Chicago. And sure, you know, we'd love to be a great church that lots of people enjoy, but that's not ultimately our goal, and I know that's not ultimately your goal. Our goal is not necessarily to be a great church, but for our church to help make a great community and make a great city. Um, Rich Gorman pastors at our Edgewater campus on the far north side of Chicago and uh, he came up with a really interesting way to bring shalom to that part of the city. He likes to spend his mornings at Dunkin' Donuts and one Dunkin' Donuts place that he likes to stop by is near the Bryn Mawr uh, red line stop up there and uh, he would sit there and he would pray and then he would watch people walk into the L stop, get on the train and head down to the loop to go to work. And what he noticed was just hundreds, if not thousands, of people walking by. And he said, you know, most people look tired. Most people look discouraged. Most people looked hopeless, even depressed. And he said almost everyone of them would just simply look down as they walked by towards the L stop to get on the train. They just looked down, kind of discouraged and depressed. So he came up with this idea. He said, you know what? What if we started chalking, you know, chalking inspiring messages on the sidewalk? I mean, they're looking down already, right? So they're going to see it. And so they started doing that. And for the last several months, a team of people from his campus have been doing that. They'll wait till later in the evening, the night before, to, to chalk these inspiring, encouraging messages. Then when people were walking by, they're reading them on their way to work. And the response has been amazing. We had a, a DePaul University student uh, write an article about it. A Northwestern student also wrote an article about it. It was in the, the Red Eye, you know, the urban kind of version of the Chicago Tribune. And then um, just recently, Rich got an email from a woman. I want to read it to you. She says, uh, Rich, I found your church through your inspirational sidewalk chalk messages. I live near Bryn Mawr and I kept seeing these messages on the sidewalk on my way to work and they seemed to be meant for me. They were messages I really needed to hear exactly when I needed to hear them. I began to look them, for them on Wednesday morning once I realized there was a pattern. They do it on Tuesday night. I looked forward to those positive messages. They, they gave me a, a good feeling when I walked across them on my way to work and then I stumbled across a post somebody made online that led me to your church. I wasn't ready in March when I first discovered your church, but I feel like I am now. I'm 32, haven't attended church in 20 years. I'm not sure what I believe other than that knowing that there is a higher power and that I want to be a good person and have a happy life. I've been feeling lost for a while. After fleeing an abusive husband, I have gotten a divorce, relocated twice, and started a new job all in the last year. I'm not sure, sure that your church will help me find my way, but I would like to give it a try. Thank you. All the best. Kate. Cool stuff, huh? And see, I think it's just a simple kind of creative way 
to bring shalom to the city. I like the way Dave Gibbons, best-selling author, puts it. I heard him talk once at a time, and he said that churches need to measure success differently. He said churches need to measure success differently. He said we need to measure success by what he called decreasing metrics. Decreasing metrics. Not so much by numbers like attendance or size of our budget, but by other numbers going down in our community. He said we need to measure our success by you know, fewer people who are poor and lonely or outcast. Or fewer people who feel meaningless, lost, and hopeless. We need to measure our success by fewer divorces, fewer kids on the street, fewer students without a first-class education, fewer singles looking for love in all the wrong places. We need to measure our success by decreasing metrics. Interesting, huh? A couple of friends of mine uh, went to Haiti just uh, days after the uh, earthquake a couple of years ago. One of them was an ER doc, and the other was uh, a friend of his who just loved the country of Haiti and wanted to do whatever he could to help this ER doc be as successful as possible while he was there. And the earthquake happened on Tuesday. My friends arrived there on Sunday and uh, spent the better part of two weeks there, and they had you know, story after story of the incredible devastation that they saw in Port-au-Prince. But they also told of this one particular neighborhood that caught them off guard. And in this one neighborhood, when they got there, there was already medical attention getting out. Uh, the rubble was already being cleared just days after the earthquake. Orphans were already being cared for. And at first they thought, well, maybe some advanced team of relief workers arrived there before they did. But it turns out that there happened to be a church in that neighborhood, a church in that community that immediately sprung into action to help each other and to help that community. Now, I don't know about you, but I would say that this is a church in its neighborhood that gets what it means to love their community. See, our mission in Chicago is uh, simply put to help people find their way back to God. And we have two numbers that help us keep that mission in mind, 67 and 20. 67 and 20, because we know that if the world were a village of 100 people, 67 of those people would have yet to find their way back to God and 20 of those people would be living in extreme poverty. And so I think as a church, we need to do everything possible to see those two numbers go down. Decreasing metrics. All right, so the first word is what? Help me out. Oh boy, I must not be doing very good. No, exile, say it. Good, second word is? Right, all right, we got one more word, okay? We're going to look back at the end of that passage again. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city. Pray to the Lord for it. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Now this word, you know, you might not think is that big a deal. Pray. Pray for the peace and prosperity of the city. And in some ways, even as I'm looking at this passage, it didn't feel like the most inspiring place to land in terms of like a, a next step or an action step to take in terms of how we can love our community. And don't get me wrong, you know, I, of course I believe prayer is important, but, um, and this is somewhat confession time, if you're like me, prayer so often is what you do when you can't do anything else. Right? Am I the only one? I mean, occasionally if I'm talking to somebody and I don't feel like I can help them in any concrete way, I'll say, well, I'll pray for you. And I do mean it, and I do believe that prayer can accomplish amazing things, and I've seen it happen over and over again. But I've got to be honest, and do, you know, to be candid with you, I too often think of prayer as kind of a default, sort of a fallback kind of thing. I know mean, that might not sound very holy or very pastor-like, and I'm sure Pastor Tim and Pastor Bill have never had thoughts like that. But how many people know what I mean, if you're honest? Yeah, I think that's kind of, unfortunately, how a lot of us are wired. And see, I guess what I'm driving at is that 
it would have made more sense to me if God in this passage would have said, okay, pray for the city, all right, and then seek its peace and prosperity. You know, you, you end with a punch of seeking the peace and prosperity, bringing shalom to your city. You know, yeah, 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 you pray, but what you really want to do is seek the peace and prosperity, right? I mean, that's more effective and more powerful than praying, isn't it? I don't think that's the intention here. See, God doesn't say pray for the city as some sort of like, you know, spiritual afterthought or kind of a nice little platitude tagged on the end of his challenge. No, he's saying, you want to do something really powerful for your city? You want to do something really powerful and impactful for your community? You start praying for it. You pray for it like you've never prayed before. One of the most influential theologians of the 20th century said this about prayer. He said, to clasp hands in prayer is the beginning of an uprising against the disorder of this world. To clasp hands in prayer is the beginning of an uprising. We need an uprising. We need an uprising. Think about it. God says to pray for your community, to clasp hands on behalf of your community. And he's talking about something every single one of us can do, regardless of where we are on our spiritual journey. Every single one of us can do that every single day in every single one of our communities. Not a person here that can't do this. I'll tell you what, you start praying for your community and I guarantee you will see at least one thing change in your community not long after you start. You start making a practice of it to pray for your community and you'll see one thing change, that is for sure. And you know what that one thing is? You. That's right, you. You will change. Pray that God will give you the eyes to see the brokenness and pain in your community and I promise you without a doubt you will begin to see your community differently. You pray that, you know, God will give you a heart of greater compassion for those around you. You pray that, and I guarantee that you will care about people you live near and work with like you never thought you could or would. You pray that God will use you as a source of help and hope to people around you. And I promise, you know, not long until you'll find yourself presented with new opportunities or overlooked possibilities that you'd never, ever seen before to bring shalom to your community. I mean, it is so easy, isn't it, for our prayers to be all about ourselves. Am I the only one? Man, I mean, I can't believe how self-centered my prayers are sometimes. I mean, I make myself sick. <laughs> and Scripture is clear. It's okay to pray about anything and everything. I'm not saying it's not. But I believe prayer is meant to be something that God uses to bring us out of ourselves. I believe prayer is meant to be something that God can use to bring us out of ourselves. Prayer is meant to be a practical, powerful, supernatural way to love our community. All right, so if you haven't heard anything I've said up to this point, here's where the real challenge comes in. Right here, okay? Tune in. Here we go. I want to challenge you, even as I challenge myself, to begin to pray every day for your community. I don't know where you live. Where Orland Park, Tinley Park, New Lenox, Frankfurt... Maybe you travel from Chicago, talk to somebody who lives in Crown Point, all right? Name your community, whatever it is. You start praying for your community every single day. And don't just say, okay, God, I, I'm praying for my community. Please bless my community. No, I want you to pick one, pick one particular way you can pray for shalom in your community. All right, particular, pray for one specific need. You think of it. What's it going to be, all right? Get it in your mind right now. You're getting it? Give me a nod of the head if you're getting something, all right? I want everybody leaving here praying every single day for your community and I want you to pray for one particular aspect, all right? Because I know if you don't zero in on one thing, you won't do it at all, okay? I don't know what it is for you, but maybe you need to pray for less loneliness in your community. 
Maybe you need to pray for, for less depression or, or pray for less addiction in your community or pray for less poverty or, or pray for less spiritual lostness for people who have yet to find their way back to God or pray for less hopelessness in our school or play, maybe you need to pray for less strife in our homes. Maybe you need to pray for less unemployment. Maybe you need to pray for less poverty. I don't know what it is, but pick one thing, one thing. Maybe it's less crime. Maybe it's less drugs. Maybe it's reduced gang activity. I don't know what it is, but you pick one thing that you can pray for in your community. You pray for that one thing every single day. And I'll tell you what, if we did that between now and next week, in one week, we will be so much closer to being a people who don't look so much at what our community can do for us, but instead we can look at our communities and go, and go God, what do you want to do through us for our communities? Are you with me? Yeah. You do that. You see, God loved our community so much that one day, over 2,000 years ago, His one and only Son, Jesus, came into this world. Talk about an exile. All right? If they thought going from Jerusalem to Babylon was bad, try being in heaven and having to come to earth. I mean, He was a self-imposed exile. And he lived with us and he died for us and he came back to life so that when we choose to follow him, what happens? His spirit comes to life inside of us so that we can extend that shalom, all right, that peace that passes all understanding, all right? We can pass that on to the people that we come into contact with every day. We're exiles. We're here to bring shalom, peace and prosperity to our communities and we can do that first and foremost when we just start praying every single day for one aspect in your community. All right, let's pray. Father God, we're thankful for Jesus. God, for, for the example that he set for us that over 2,000 years ago, he came to earth as an exile. Willingly, he chose to come here, lived with us, among us, experienced what we experienced, felt what we feel lived, died, came back to life to offer us shalom, a peace that passes all understanding so that when we choose to follow him, God, we know his spirit comes to life inside of us. We can extend that same shalom to those around us. And so, God, we pray for our communities. Wherever that community is that you live right now, God, we pray for less loneliness, less depression, less spiritual lostness. God, we know there are people that so absolutely desperately need you. God, we pray for them. We pray for less hopelessness, for less strife in our homes, for less poverty. God, whatever it might be. Because we know, Lord, that you can work on those things and you are the King of kings and Lord of lords and you can, you can shine light in places where there's darkness and bring hope to where there's hopelessness. And so we pray for that in your name. Amen.